If you have a Bible with you, open up to the Gospel of John. We're continuing in our verse-by-verse study through this amazing Gospel, the Gospel of John. And we've been looking at the story about how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And I'm sad to announce that we're not getting him out of the grave today. We're going to have to wait another week. He's going to be in the grave, I think, for four weeks instead of four days as far as our series goes. But we'll see that next week. This week, we're going to be looking at a very important topic. The title of the sermon is John 11:35. Jesus wept. You guys know that's the shortest verse in the Bible, the title of our sermon, the center of, of our focus for this time together. And so let's look at John 11:28 all the way down through 37, and we'll jump right into our time together this morning. Here's what we read. The Apostle John writes this. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Father, we want to bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we pray for insight and wisdom in this text that would show us Christ. And I pray that you would show us what we need to know about Christ today so that we can believe and live a life that's worthy of the calling to which we've been called. As we look at the fact that Jesus wept, May our hearts be touched today, and may we be changed as we behold our God, who has become flesh, who shows us true humanity in this unique way today, and may we be better because of our time here under your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, Greek mythology is the body of myths or made-up stories originally told by the people of ancient Greece. These stories concern the origin and the nature of the world. Greek mythology describes the lives and the activities of supposed deities, heroes, and mythological creatures. Modern scholars study the myths in an attempt to shed light on the religious and the political beliefs of ancient Greece and its civilization. Much of our world today has its roots in the Greco-Roman culture. So this really comes as no surprise that Westerners are interested in ancient Greek culture with a nostalgic curiosity. Some of the most well-known Greek gods and goddesses are Zeus, who was the dominating and powerful king who had a soft spot for pretty women. Then there was Hades or Pluto, who was Zeus's brother and was the god of the underworld. There is Poseidon the god of the sea. There is Hera, Zeus's wife. Athena was the goddess of wisdom and of war and the protector of Athens. 
Apollo was the god of the sun or light, poetry, music, and medicine. Artemis was Apollo's twin sister who was a goddess of hunting, chastity, and the moon. Ares was the god of war who was notorious for fighting on both sides, if at all possible. And the list goes on and on and on and on about Greek gods and Greek goddesses. My question for you today is, what are we as Christians to think about Greek mythology? We are to think that this is the world's way of explaining the origin of the universe and explaining the spiritual realm without using the Bible. I read an article this week of a theologian who was comparing the differences between the gods and goddesses of Greek mythology and the person of Jesus Christ. And he said, here are five major differences between the Greco-Roman gods and the God of the Bible. Number one, Many gods versus one God. So in Greek mythology, you have polytheism. In the Bible, we have one God and our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, sinful gods versus a sinless God. Obviously, in Greek mythology, when you read, it gets very dramatic. Every god or goddess has this one Achilles heel, this one weakness that they have, where we serve a God who is sinless. Number three, Salvation, according to Greek mythology, if you want to think of it that way, is certainly based on works versus the Bible where salvation is based on grace and faith in the gospel. Number four, in Greek mythology, war is something to uphold man's glory. Rather than in the Bible, we see war as something to display God's judgment. Number five, Greek mythology really points to aimless living versus a directed purpose of life that would glorify God. I mean, really, at the end of the day, Greek mythology is a mess, and I'm thankful we have the God of the Bible. Now, I want to add a sixth difference between the gods of Greek mythology and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it relates to our text in John 11 this morning. Greek gods and goddesses had a certain apathy or lack of emotion. The Greeks were known as Stoics who prided themselves in enduring pain or hardship without a display of feeling or emotion. In fact, a true Stoic, as we know, doesn't experience any pleasure or any pain. The idea is that they just kind of stay unemotional through it all. Now, as I was reading this a little bit, I read about a Greek uh, mythological scholar who talked about this. One scholar wrote, quote, there is understandably no deity connected to emotions as we understand them. A deity of emotion would be a deity beyond deity, a super god, which contradicts the whole idea of polytheism. You hear what that secular um, scholar is saying, he's saying if, if these gods and goddesses could have emotions on par and on level with a human being, they would be a super god. There is no such thing in Greek mythology. Well, my friends, that is exactly what we have in the Bible. A super god, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And we see that in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't have a mythological god who is stoic or apathetic to your plight. No, we have a God who cares, a God who feels, a God who knows. And how Jesus is moved to tears in this text shows us just that. 
I mean, Jesus understands our suffering. Hebrews 2.18, he himself was, has suffered when he was tempted, so he is able to help those who are being, who are being tempted. Or how about uh, Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. What we're talking about is can God feel does Jesus experience emotion? Well, let me just say, God does not have sinful passions or emotions, but he does have righteous ones. And I appreciate Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology who writes, quote, God, who is the origin of our emotions and who created our emotions, certainly does feel emotions, he rejoices, Isaiah 62.5. He is grieved, Ephesians 4.30. His wrath burns hot against his enemies, Exodus 32.10. He pities his children, Psalm 103.13. He loves with an everlasting love, Isaiah 54.8. He is a God whose passions we are to imitate for all eternity as we, like our Creator, hate sin, and delight in righteousness. Well, I think Dr. Grudem gets it exactly right. While we want to be careful about the impassibility of God, what we're also saying is we serve a God who is unlike mythology because he really knows and really feels, and we see that in the person of Jesus Christ. We know and we see a beauty in Jesus' tears, not a weakness, we see an authenticity to Christ's humanity in this text. We see something relatable and something that touches our hearts and something we can all identify with. Jesus wept. And when we read that verse as human beings, it just draws us in to get a little closer look at the emotions of the Savior. Really, the blending of Christ's divine glories and his human perfections meet us perfectly in this text. And throughout the Gospel of John, we understand that John is showing us Jesus as the Son of God. But in the Gospel of John, we also see him connecting Jesus with the humanity that we so well know. And in some ways, even more uniquely than in some of the synoptics. And John is the only Gospel who tells us that Christ was being wearied with his journey. John is the Gospel that tells us that Jesus was groaning as he beheld the tears of his own. It's in here in John's gospel that we see Jesus thirsting as he hung upon the cross. And so Christ became man in the fullest sense of the word, and nowhere do we behold his human sympathies and perfections more than in this very gospel, which portrays him as God manifest in the flesh. And so this morning, I wanna to present to you four headings that in this time I'm going to phrase it as four questions on this passage that will help us better understand the significance of the verse, Jesus wept. Four questions. You ready? Number one, when the Lord calls, do you come quickly? If you are taking notes this morning, you could fill in this blank. Let's talk about transitioning from Martha to Mary. So here we are, jumping in at verse 28, ongoing study in this chapter, when she, that would be Martha, had said this, she sent and called her sister Mary in private. The Lord, uh, excuse me, the teacher is here 
calling for you. Let's see the transition here between Martha and Mary. If you'll remember in verses 20 through 27, it was Martha who heard that Jesus was coming after Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. And so she went out to meet Jesus on the edge of the town of Bethany while Mary remained seated in the house. In fact, look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we saw that in that statement, Martha is affirming that she believes that if Jesus would have been there, Lazarus would not have died. This is not necessarily complaining, but rather stating the facts. Jesus, if you had come, it is very likely that Jesus would have healed Lazarus as he had healed so many others. And the fact is, Lazarus might have already been in the grave for four days. I mean, he was in the grave for four days, but I'm saying from the time the message went forth, it may have been that Martha never expected him to come heal Lazarus because he had died. Remember day one, Jesus received the message. Days two and three, Jesus decides to wait for two more days for the glory of God and the benefit of his audience. And then day four is this day when he shows up and Lazarus has now been dead for four days. And so this is more of a statement of faith than a statement of complaint. And I think that we could verify that even a little bit with verse 22 where Martha's like, man, I wish you'd have been here because I know you would have kept him alive. But even now, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And we talked about how we need a little bit more of that even now kind of faith. That when you face difficulties in your life and you kind of feel like things didn't turn out like you wanted, that you could still come to Jesus and say, look, things didn't turn out like I wanted, but even now, I trust you. Even now, you can take what is going on and make it for good. Even now, Lord, whatever you do, I'm here to submit to you and to follow you. And we see that in the person of Martha. And what does Jesus say to her? Verse 23, he says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha responds, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. We talked about how Martha thinks Jesus is talking about some point in the future, But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus wants Martha and all of us in this room to know that on this day, this context is talking about a person, not an event. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection, he's not saying, hey, look to the future, though we could. He says, look to me. I am the resurrection. It's a person. The resurrection is more than just a a future occurrence. It is a present reality. The resurrection is not just a, a spiritual concept. It is an ongoing change that happens in a person when they're made alive together with Christ. And we're going to be talking about the implications of this miracle next week after we see how Jesus did raise Lazarus from the dead that very day. And then we read last week about how Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? Most important question that you could ever be asked, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that he has power to raise one from the dead and to raise your dead soul from its sin and from its own spiritual death? And of course, Martha responds with her confession showing that she believes that Jesus is Lord She believes that Jesus is the Christ. She believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And she believes that Jesus is the coming one. That's where we ended with verse 27. She believes all of those things. Her her belief is solid. Her faith is steadfast. Her belief in Jesus is unwavering. I mean, she got her fix. 
She needed to know what Jesus was thinking and she gets filled with his perspective and his knowledge and it comforted her. She received instruction from the Lord. She got off her chest what she needed to and she's been replaced now with a deeper trust and a deeper wisdom and a deeper faith in the timing of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's about to do. She knows he's, about, he's up to something. Like he just has that look in his eye. He's got that twinkle in his eye. Mary, you know I am the resurrection and life. And should I dare hope that he's gonna do what I think he might do? And after Martha got what she needed, it's now time for Mary to have the same opportunity. And so again, in verse 28, we transition from one sister to another. Again, when she had said this, she went out and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here calling for you. Apparently, Jesus sent Martha to go get Mary. So Martha goes back to the house, calling on Mary, and she talks to her in private. They want to ask the question, why did she talk to her in private? Maybe she feared for Jesus' safety for last time he was in the Jerusalem area. They tried to stone him. It also is possible that the Lord wanted to have a conversation with Mary in private and in a, in a, you know, a, a, a more intimate setting before the crowd, crowd spotted him. Uh, sometimes it's appropriate to have a one-on-one -on -one time with the Lord. And Martha had had this privilege and I think Jesus wanted to afford Mary that same opportunity. And so Martha refers to Jesus as the teacher. This is a notable title for the master teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this reference to Jesus as the teacher would have been a natural way of referring to Jesus for any disciple prior to his resurrection. This is an opportunity for the rabbi to have time with a woman in private that's also unusual, just as we saw in Jesus meeting with the woman at the well of Samaria. A Jewish rabbi never met with a woman alone, but such is the way of Jesus. Jesus, in his perfections, wants time with you one-on-one. -on -one. Jesus seeks out each one of his sheep. Remember in John 10 when we learned of Jesus as the good shepherd and he calls his own sheep by name. Yes, he knows us collectively as the body of Christ, but he also knows you individually and he calls you out by name. He leads us all out of the sheep pen and into greener pastures and his sheep follow him for they know his voice. And Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me. And so let me ask you this morning, would you know the voice of the Lord if he called you today? If somebody came to you and says, the teacher calls, will you come? Will you listen? Will you know that voice? Well, I would say to you today, you can hear that same voice through the words of Scripture. Jesus, time and time again, invites you into a conversation and a relationship with him. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he says to you, come unto me all who are weary and heavy burden and I will give you rest he invites you in he's calling you out do you hear his voice can you understand what he's saying he desires to interact with you he wants to talk with you this leads us to our next blank the teacher calls Mary the teacher calls and Mary responds she responds to this she's not going to let this opportunity go away when she heard it Verse 29, she rose quickly and went to him. Now notice how it was as soon as Mary heard the Lord that she came, right? She rose quickly and went. She did not hesitate. She did not delay. She did not dilly-dally. 
Right? The Lord calls, there she goes. I want to go see the Lord. She got up and she went and she was likely walking at a fast pace. She was eager to meet with her Lord. She obeyed him instantly. And the scripture's full of stories like this where the Lord calls and people respond. Do you remember the story of Abraham when God called him to sacrifice Isaac and he said, take him to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice your one and only son? Sometimes the calling of God can be tough and yet we read in Genesis 22:3, Abraham rose early in the morning. God called Abraham to give great sacrifice. He didn't wait, he didn't delay. He got up early and he began to obey Yahweh. Or how about the story of Samuel when he was just a boy? And the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel said, Here I am. Of course, he got confused, and he ran to Eli. Here I am, for you called for me. Eli said, I did not call for you. Go lay down again. So he went and lay down, and the Lord called again Samuel. And Samuel arose, and he went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, son. Lie down. This is starting to sound like my house at bedtime. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, go back to bed, all right? The third time, now Samuel did not know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him and the Lord called Samuel again a third time and he rose and went to Eli. Here I am, for you called me. Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, go lie down and if he calls you, you shall say, speak Lord for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. I mean, I don't know about you, but I just love these stories. God calls the believers eager to come to where he is and to hear what he has to say. The same thing happened with blind Bartimaeus. He's calling out to Jesus. The disciples try to rebuke him. All of a sudden, Jesus stopped and he said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. Don't you love it? That's an that's a example of how, who we can be. Let's spring up. Let's get rid of what's holding us down, and let's come to Jesus. Because here's the truth, Jesus is calling you every day. Every day he's calling you into a closer relationship with himself. He's calling you every day. And I'm not talking about a mystical Jesus calling devotional by Sarah Young. I am talking about the real Jesus who calls through scripture to each one of his children each moment of the day for you to commune with him, for you to hear his voice, for you to know through scripture that his voice speaks to you and you come running to him in the midst of your hurt and in the midst of your trial and in the midst of your heartache, he's calling. Let me ask you the question, do you come? Are you coming quickly? Do you come to the right place? You will not find him in the culture. You will not find him in a dream. You will not find him in a bottle. You will not find him in a feeling. No, you will find him in his word. And he calls to you. And his voice can only be heard through scripture. And when you hear it, and when you come, I hope that you'll come all the way. I hope that you'll come right away. And I hope that you'll come with a happy heart. 
That's what we try to teach our kids, right? I want you to come right away, all the way with a happy heart. And this is how God calls us in. He calls us into this relationship. Will you come this morning? The teacher calls for you. He does. Do you hear his voice? Are you ready to come? Second question I want to ask you this morning is number two, when you come, do you fall at his feet? Your next blank. Sometimes Jesus waits for you to come to him. Verse 30, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. For whatever reason, Jesus stays put. Most likely, he wanted to afford, again, Mary, that same privacy that Martha had experienced. The house was full of people. There were mourners and wailers everywhere. They had come to console the sisters, but Jesus had not yet entered fully into the village of Bethany. He had not come into the house. He was waiting just outside of town. Great things sometimes happen outside of town. Great things happen sometimes outside of the hustle and bustle of life. Great things happen in the scripture time and time again outside of the city. It was John the Baptist who started his ministry outside of Jerusalem, outside of the hub, outside of all of the seminaries of Hebrew, right? And he's out in the wilderness, clothed in camel's hair, wearing a leather belt around his waist, and he eats locusts with wild honey. And we read in Mark 1, 4 and 5, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins, and all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. We also read about how Jesus suffered outside of the gate, that we are to go outside of the camp in order to be with Jesus. Hebrews 13, 11 and following says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the Holy of Holies by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. I'm just trying to say that on this very day, it may be that Jesus is outside of your situation. He may be standing outside of the four walls that you have put him in. He may be outside of the sheep pen and he is waiting for you to come outside of the gate, outside of the door, to his voice, to his calling, to his invitation, and he is there waiting for you. He's waiting for you to come outside where he is. I also want you to see the important principle of verse 31, that there is something sacred about consoling others. While Jesus is standing, waiting for Mary to come outside where he is, we read in verse 31, when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. There is something sacred about consoling others. There were many Jews there in the house consoling Mary. Remember, they could come easily again from Jerusalem there to Bethany, and they came to comfort her. The word consoling means to comfort. It means to encourage. It actually can even mean to cheer up. 
And I shared with you last time that only Christ can truly comfort you in the midst of your tragedy or your trial, and he does so in the midst of a trial of any magnitude. But it is also nice to have family and friends show up and be with you in your time of need. It is a blessing that Mary and Martha were surrounded with other people. In fact, the Bible states this in Ecclesiastes. I want you to turn here with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 4. Just after the Proverbs, we have an important truth that I want to draw your attention to this morning that we can even learn from this narrative in John about the importance of going to those who are going through difficult times. And here's what it says. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 4 says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Do you know what this verse is saying? The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The point of this verse is to teach us that more is often learned from adversity than from pleasure. True wisdom is learned in the crucible of life's trials, not necessarily in the times of celebration. This means that sometimes God takes you through the storm and he takes you through the difficulty and he wants you to come and he wants other people to show up because when we gather together in the house of mourning, there's something special there. There's a resemblance of the care of God there. There's an opportunity for us to come together in that place and in that moment to have some sobriety about how quickly life can pass and how quickly we can meet tragedy. And there's something, there's some wisdom that God wants to offer in the house of mourning. The party house, you're not gonna learn as much. You just go to have a good time, yay, yay, rah, rah, dance, dance. But you're not growing in wisdom. Doesn't mean there's never a time for that. We have a party house, it's my house. We like to party, right? But sometimes there's mourning going on and we're saying there's wisdom in gathering around in that moment. And so I believe there's something sacred, something holy about people coming together to bring comfort to the house of those who've lost loved ones. But that's hard to do, isn't it? I mean, when you go to a funeral home or you go to visit someone who's just lost a loved one, you have no idea what to say. And that's okay. Sometimes saying nothing may be the best thing you could do. Just to be there and to hug them and to tell them that you love them and that you're praying for them could be the most comforting words you could ever offer. Just by going and touching the bereaved person and squeezing his or her hand, you're showing love and concern. In a time of loss, that is a profoundly meaningful thing to do. And so we see here that Mary comes. She's being comforted and consoled by those who were there, and we want to learn something from that. But now we see her coming. Remember, she rose and quickly went out, and of course the Jews follow her, thinking that she's going to the tomb to weep. At first, you might be like, oh no, here come the Jews again. I wanted Mary to have that precious one-on-one time you were talking about. Never fear, friend. Jesus is sovereign even over that. Okay, they're going to all come with her, but Jesus is going to use it as an opportunity to display his human emotion. He's going to use it as an opportunity to display this magnificent miracle in a way that there are many witnesses to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. You know, sometimes it's like, oh no, I don't want them to be there. And then they're there. And it's okay. 
God's going to use them being there at that moment to still glorify himself. The next blank that we see here is Mary's worship is sincere but incomplete. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him, she fell at his feet, and saying to him, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. I'm saying that her worship is sincere, but it's possibly somewhat incomplete. The only thing that is lacking in Mary's worship in this verse is a full understanding of Jesus being the resurrection and the life. And she would soon learn that as Jesus waited for her to come and he waited to come to her because it was for the glory of God so the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so Mary comes to where Jesus was and when she saw him, she fell at his feet and she and Martha had obviously been talking as sisters do. You know they do. Two sisters, they talk and talk and talk and talk and we know that because it seemed like she's saying the exact same thing that Martha did. Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Now, some commentators say that both Martha and now Mary were complaining to the Lord. In fact, one commentator went so far as to say that Mary, quote, gives the impression of being nothing but a complaining woman, close quote. Wow! Like, I think that's a little bit overboard, don't you think? Like, I wouldn't want to go to that guy's church. You know, all law, no grace. Mary, you know that Mary in the Bible? She's nothing but a complaining woman. I, I would say, you know what, let's give them a little bit of grace. They just lost their brother. We don't know from the language what the tone was. We just know that they come and they've lost their brother, likely the breadwinner of the family. And at the very least, we should give, give some room for these sisters to share their heart and their thoughts with the Lord. I also think that this statement could be read in a very positive light, something like, Lord, we're hurting now, but we know that if you would have been here, Lazarus would still be alive. In other words, they had every faith that Jesus could have and would have healed Lazarus if he would have been present before Lazarus died. This is potentially a positive statement of faith and of trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know which one it was, but I tend to give a little bit of grace to Mary and Martha saying, Lord, we know if you'd have been here, it'd be different. Now Martha said, but even now, and we're not sure if Mary had that same sentiment, it's not recorded in the text, so I'm not sure, but there's no reason to doubt that she also had a similar trust in the Lord, that even now, God's in control, even now he's up to something good. But I will tell you what I like about Mary. I'll tell you exactly what I like about her. I like the fact every time you see her at Scripture, she's at the Lord's feet. She comes and she gets on her face before the Lord. Her posture is always humble. It is worshipful. And she bows before the Lord. By the way, she's not rebuked here. Neither Martha or Mary are rebuked for what they say. It's another indication that maybe what they said was in a positive light and not a doubting light. But, but what I like about Mary, she comes and she's at his feet. And when we first hear about Mary in Luke chapter 10, verse 39, we hear that she's there and she's sat at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching. When we read about Mary again in John chapter 12, verse 3, she took a pound of ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. Every time you see Mary, it's something about Jesus' feet. Instead of saying, Mary had nothing but a complaining spirit, I think we should say Mary was doing nothing except sitting at the feet of Jesus. Every time we see her, she's at the feet of her Lord. She 
reveres the Lord. She respects the Lord. She, held, she holds Jesus in high regard. She adores the Lord Jesus. She sits at his feet and she listens. She had a very teachable spirit. She worships him. She honors him. She knows her place. And her place is at the feet of Jesus. Where is your place with the Lord? When you come out and you come a-running into the presence of God, how is your posture? Do you bow at his feet and worship him as such? Or do you sometimes want to go toe-to-toe with Jesus? Do you really want to go eye-to-eye with him? Do you have the audacity to assume that you and Jesus are evenly matched? Your thoughts are on par with his thoughts. Your wisdom has a place at the table with his wisdom. Well, I hope not. Didn't go very well with Job, who, while we could give him much grace as well, and initially in the book, he's doing pretty good, but through the book, he begins to struggle. At the end of the book, God calls him up and says, hey, Job, come here. Come here, let me question you. Because Job began to get a little too big for his britches, doubting the wisdom of God. And so God sits him down and says, I got some questions for you. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I told the oceans they come this far and no further? Where were you, Job, when the mountain goats gave birth? Tell me if you know. And Job covers his mouth, right? He's like, I I got nothing. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I can't handle the Leviathan. I can't handle the behemoth. I'm nothing, Lord. That's the mindset we should have. We, we come into the presence of God, hopefully with this mindset of Mary. I, I, we can learn a lot from Mary just in her posture. I want to be like that. I want to sit at his feet. I want to pour out my offering before him. I want to adore him with all that I am. I want to say to the Lord, you are the ever-wise God. You are the beautiful one, right? You're the wonderful counselor. You're a mighty God. I'm nothing. And so we come into his presence, hopefully, with that kind of humility. So I'm saying Mary's worship is sincere, but it's a little bit incomplete. And maybe we could ask the question, well, where is your worship incomplete? What is it that you are not seeing in the person of Christ? I I can assure you that whatever doubt or hardship that you're going through on this day is only a result of your lack of faith and trust, not a lack of God's goodness or his wisdom or his kindness, He's never off in his timing. And so we have to come and say, I'm gonna worship him fully, just as he is, and submit it all there. But the third question I wanna ask you is this. When you see Jesus weep, do you know what moved him? When you see him weep, do you know what moved him? Your next blank, Jesus considers the situation. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was moved, excuse me, he was deeply moved and his spirit in his spirit and greatly troubled. So again, we see Jesus here. He sees Mary weeping. He observed her tears. Surely he felt her pain. This word for weeping is a word that shows intense sorrow and emotional pain. In the original, the word means to wail. It means to mourn loudly. The same word is used of the Jews who are accompanying Mary is they were also weeping. And so when Jesus saw this and experienced this intense emotion, the text says that he was deeply moved. Now typically, when we think of Jesus being deeply moved, we think, ah, he's moved with compassion. Not so fast. 
It is true Jesus is moved with compassion as is revealed time and time again in Scripture. But that's not this word. When it says that he's deeply moved in the original, it means literally to be indignant. It means to be greatly agitated. It means, according to some, that Jesus groaned. In fact, lexically, outside of the Bible, it's used in other places to talk about the snort of a horse. You've all experienced riding a horse. You try to get to go a certain way. It begins to kind of kick back and do its little neigh, its little, its little you know, horse sound. I'm not going to do it for you, all right? But, but we're saying here that it's kind of a little agitation going on. Like, I don't like what's happening. I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not liking this. There's, this. there's this word here that's applied to a human. It invariably suggests anger, outrage, or to sigh with distress. Jesus is upset. The word for deeply moved is used only three other times in the New Testament outside of this chapter. It's used in Matthew 9.30, where we read about how Jesus sternly warned, that's the word, sternly warned the two blind men that they uh, were to be healed but not go tell anyone else about it just yet. The second place it's used is in Mark 1.43. The same word is used where Jesus sternly charged the leper, sternly charged is the translation, that leper that he, that he had healed not to say anything to anyone except show himself to the priest. Third time it's used is by the disciples in Mark 14.5 where they were deeply moved or the word is translated they scolded Mary for using the alabaster flask of ointment to pour it over Jesus' head. They felt like the money could have been sold and given to the poor. All I'm trying to say is this. This word, deeply moved, is not used in the other context of the Bible to communicate sympathy, but rather to communicate disgust. The text says he was deeply moved. He's upset about something. And then it says that he's greatly troubled. The word greatly troubled means that Jesus is disturbed. He is experiencing inward turmoil. These two words together show us with clarity that Jesus is angry. He is irritated. He is irked. He is irate. Not in a sinful way, but this is an example of righteous indignation. What is Jesus mad at, you ask? Why is he so upset? I believe that Jesus is mad at sin. When sin entered the world, it caused death. Lazarus' death and pain caused his sisters and those around them deep pain. It's a reminder that sin has a pervasiveness and an influence on the human body and the human soul. Sin always leads to heartache. Sin always leads to pain. Sin always leads to death. One commentator suggested that the other reason Jesus might have been angry instead of just at sin in general is he might have been upset that the crowd of mourners who came were all acting like unbelievers because they're, hip, they're hypocritical if they don't know him and then they're mourning but the mourning is those who don't have hope. So some say he's just mad at sin. Some say he's just mad at the situation of what's going on, all the commotion. I think that whatever's going on, this is a, a good reminder that it's okay to be upset at times. Uh, the problem with some of us is that we are too spiritually apathetic. We know we're going to struggle again. We know we'll fall again. 
we know that we will give in again, so we stop fighting and we get complacent where we are in our walk and we don't experience that righteous indignation to get upset about what upsets God. May we continue to put to death the deeds of the flesh. May we continue to fight the fight of faith. May we groan when we see sin take over. May we be upset and may we be prepared to fight a fight that we need to fight. Well, whatever's going on here in Christ's heart, we certainly see a contrast with the Greek God's apathy or lack of emotion. Jesus' emotional display confirms the reality of his humanity and it connects him with his people. It endears him. They see an emotion that they're actually drawn to. And part of what we see here is that Jesus, your next blank, he comes closer to the problem. Verse 34 And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus saw Mary weeping. He was right there. He was up close and personal in his demeanor. He was not shying away. He was not taking a back seat. He was not removed from the situation. He inserted himself in the middle of the situation. And he wanted to know more about the problem. You know, sometimes you come to comfort somebody and you start, they start talking and your eyes start glazing over and you just want out. When Jesus was ministering to this person, he's like, tell me more. Tell me, where have you laid him? What is going on? How are you feeling is the idea. It just seems like he's leaning in. He's showing interest. Jesus is not indifferent. He's not unattached. He's not uninvolved. Jesus wants to know more about the problem because he has a plan and the power to fix the problem. The same is true in your life. You have no friend that is closer than Jesus. You have no greater advocate than the Lord Jesus Christ. You will never have a friend closer than this. And he calls you friends. John 15, 15, no longer have I called you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. There's no greater love than this, than a man would die for his friends. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And this is what friends do. They come and they listen and they help and they tell you what you need to be told. And they're there for you no matter what. Jesus comes closer. Your next blank says Jesus cries with tears of compassion. Here we are. Shortest verse in the English Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept, the shortest verse of the English Bible. Everyone knows this verse. It's a verse that shows the compassion of Christ. It's a verse that reveals his humanity. It's a verse that causes us to stop and ponder and even wonder at what is going on. I mean, we just talked about how Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled, both which communicated in the original language that Jesus was mad and that he was angry. And now we're reading about him crying. What is going on? This word, wept, in verse 35, is not the same word that described Mary weeping and her friends weeping in verse 33. Remember, that weeping was defined as loud wailing and loud lamenting. This weeping, on the other hand, in this sense, in verse 35, is a silent bursting into tears. So everybody else is wailing, lamenting loudly. You looked at Jesus' face, all of a sudden, huge tears streaming down his cheeks. 
This weeping has this sense of, of, of he's connecting and experiencing similar pain. But why, we ask? I do believe that these are tears of genuine sympathy. There are many emotions that go through the human response to trials. Sometimes there's anger. Sometimes there are tears. Sometimes there is rejoicing. Humans are complex creatures, especially women. And I don't mean that in a mean way. I mean, you just know what I'm talking about. You get upset, you get, you know, then there's laughing and then there's tears and it's just all coming out. That's just an emotional makeup. That's healthy. And I think we see a healthy emotional makeup to Jesus. He's angry at sin. And yet he cries and tears up with compassion for Mary and Martha. Why was he crying? Because I believe that Jesus he knew, I mean, the other question would obviously be like, well, why are you crying? He was about to raise him from the dead. He knew God's glory would be on display. He knew he was about to perform this awesome miracle that would be the greatest of all of his miracles with incredible significance. So sometimes we're like, well, he's about to do this five minutes later. Why is he crying now? Why was Jesus crying? Because he is a human being. And you ought to take great comfort for that. He is a human being. He he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The tears of our Lord were not the tears of sin. They were not the tears of a professional mourner. They were not the tears of hopelessness. These are the tears of Jesus hurting. For Mary and for Martha, these tears proceed the most, uh, from the most genuine love for mankind ever displayed except for the sacrifice of Christ's body on the cross. Do you hear that? Other than his sacrifice for you, I believe these tears show more about his love and his care for you than anything else that he ever did. Nowhere is Jesus more vulnerable, more transparent, and more relatable than when he is in tears. This verse ought to make us stop and think this verse should give us pause. This, this verse ought to be a wonder, just like a toddler. You ever had a, a two or three-year-old that you're holding and all of a sudden they see mommy or daddy crying and they just kind of stop and they look back and they're like, I didn't know mommy's and daddy's cried. And they reach up and try to wipe your tear. Have you ever seen that? It's a precious thing. That's how we should respond to this. I didn't know the Lord cried. I didn't know he cared that much. What a wonderful human being that the Lord of the universe feels my pain and he knows my hurt. It's unbelievable. The New Testament only records Jesus shedding three years, uh, tears on three occasions. One, he wept over Jerusalem, Luke 19, because he knew it was about to be judged because of their unrepentance and he cried over the city of Jerusalem. Two would have been this text. Three would have been in the Garden of Gethsemane. Most of you know that he prayed so earnestly that he sweat drops of blood. But did you know he also cried? It's not recorded in the Gospels, but it is in Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Here's what I'm trying to say. Jesus wept, important verse. It shows us, no, Jesus is not a stoic. He's not apathetic. He is not impassive. He is the God-man. He is mighty, 
and he is meek. He is filled with strength and resolve, but he is also appropriately human with all the feelings and the emotions of a real human being. I hope that you will take some comfort today in the fact that Jesus wept. There are no shame in the tears of our Lord. There is only love and concern and sympathy that he shows for all of those who are in need. May we also follow the example of Jesus Christ. May we embrace Ecclesiastes when it says there's a time for everything, for every matter under heaven. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. May we obey Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. J.C. Ryle said, quote, to be cold and stoical and unmoved in the sight of sorrow is no sign of grace. There is nothing unworthy of a child of God in tears. Even the Son of God could weep It shows us above all that the Savior in whom believers trust is a most common and tender Savior. Unbelievable what we're learning here today. Let's just skip over to the take-home points. I'll finish up maybe that fourth point next week. But just as we leave today, let me ask you these three questions. Do you hear Jesus calling you? Do you hear him calling for you? If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, let me invite you into a personal relationship with Jesus. Is it possible that on this very day, the teacher is here and he's calling for you? Would you come to him? Would you come outside of the gate, outside of your situation, outside of your life, outside of your stubbornness? And would you just come to the teacher and lay at his feet and let him tell you what he wants to tell you? Second question, will you rise up and come quickly to him? Will you be like Mary and that just simple example to rise up and come quickly? Dear Christian, I hope that what you've seen today is not a Greek God, but the God of the Bible. Jesus feels, he empathizes, and he cares for you. Dear Christian, whatever you're going through on this day, come quickly. He cares for you and he wants to comfort you. Last question, when is the last time that you fell at his feet? When's the last time you just had the intimacy of, you know what, when I'm with Jesus, I'm going to be on my face. I'm going to be at his feet. I'm going to be in the posture of, Lord, you're almighty. I'm nothing. Teach me. I'm struggling. I need to better understand. Would you teach me? You know what, this whole section shows us a powerful truth about Jesus. Jesus wept. And it shows us that he cares for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dump in and jump in to John 11 again and just to have a deep dive really in some of these words, what it means for Jesus to be deeply moved, what it means for him to be greatly troubled. And we're seeing here that Jesus truly is angry against sin. And I pray, God, that we would also see here he's, he's still, at the same time he has great compassion and care for his own. I pray that today we would see the humanity of Jesus like we've never seen it before. We know Jesus is the Son of God. We know He's the Son of Man. We know He is the mighty Savior, and we know He is a concerned Savior. And so I pray that today that would give us strength, that would cause us to want to come to you, that you feel our pain, you know our hurt. And so as we contemplate and think through this passage, I pray that it would move our hearts 
and it would cause us to want to come to receive counsel and instruction and comfort from our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.